This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Valley. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 4, Chapter 17. But in these cases, we still have judgment here that we but teach bloody instructions which, being taught, return to plague the inventor. Thus, even handed justice commends the ingredients of our poison the chalice to our own lips. Macbeth. Some circumstances of an extraordinary nature now withdrew Emily from her own sorrows and excited emotions, which partook of both surprise and horror. A few days followed that on which Signora Laurentini died, her will was opened at the monastery, in the presence of the superiors and Monsieur Bonac, when it was found that one-third of her personal property was bequeathed to the nearest surviving relative of the late Marchioness de Villeroy, and that Emily was the person. With the secret of Emily's family, the abbess had long been acquainted, and it was in observance of the earnest request of San Aubur, who was known to a friar, that attended him on his deathbed, that his daughter had remained in ignorance of her relationship to the Marchioness. But some hints which had fallen from Signora Laurentini during her last interview with Emily, and a confession of a very extraordinary nature given in her dying hours, had made the abbess think it necessary to converse with her young friend on the topic she had not before ventured to introduce, and it was for this purpose that she had requested to see her on the morning that followed her interview with the nun. Emily's indisposition had then prevented the intended conversation, but now, after the will had been examined, she received a summons, which she immediately obeyed, and became informed of circumstances that powerfully affected her. As the narrator of the abyss was, however, deficient in many particulars, of which the reader may wish to be informed, and the history of the nun is materially connected with the fate of the Marchioness de Villeroy, we shall omit the conversation that passed in the parlour of the convent, and mingle with our relation a brief history of Laurentini Diodolfo, who was the only child of her parents, and heiress of the ancient house of Udolfo, in the territory of Venice. It was the first misfortune of her life that which led to all her succeeding misery, that the friends who ought to have restrained her strong passions and mildly instructed her in the art of governing them, nurtured them by early indulgence. But they cherished their own failings in her, for their conduct was not the result of rational kindness, 
and when they either indulged or opposed the passions of their child, they gratified their own. Thus they indulged her with weakness, and reprehended her with violence. Her spirit was exasperated by their vehemence. Instead of being corrected by their wisdom, and their oppositions became contest for victory, in which the due tenderness of the parents and the affectionate duties of the child were equally forgotten. But as returning fondness disarmed the parents' resentment soonest, Laurentini was suffered to believe that she had conquered, and her passions became stronger by every effort that had been employed to subdue them. The death of her father and mother in the same year left her to her own discretion, under the dangerous circumstances attendant on youth and beauty. She was fond of company, delighted with admiration, yet disdainful of the opinion of the world, when it happened to contradict her inclinations, had a gay and brilliant wit, and was mistress of all the arts of fascination. Her conduct was such as might have been expected from the weakness of her principles and the strength of her passions. Among her numerous admirers was the late Marquis de Villeroy, who, on his tour through Italy, saw Laurentini at Venice, where she usually resided and became her passionate adorer. Equally captivated by the figure and accomplishments of the Marquis, who was at that period one of the most distinguished noblemen of the French court, she had the art so effectually to conceal from him the dangerous traits of her character and the blemishes of her late conduct that he solicited her hand in marriage. Before the nuptials were concluded, she retired to the castle of Udolfo, whither the Marquis followed, and where her conduct, relaxing from the propriety which she had lately assumed, discovered to him the precipice on which he stood. A minuter inquiry than he had before thought it necessary to make convinced him that he had been deceived in her character, and she whom he had designed for his wife, afterwards became his mistress. Having passed some weeks at Udolfo, he was called abruptly to France, whither he returned with extreme reluctance, for his heart was still fascinated by the arts of Laurentini, with whom, however, he had on various pretenses delayed his marriage. But to reconcile her to this separation, he now gave repeated promises of returning to conclude the nuptials. As soon as the affair, which thus suddenly called him to France, should permit. Soothed in some degree by these assurances, she suffered him to depart, and soon after her relative, Montoni, arriving at Udolfo, renewed the addresses, which, she had before refused, and which she now again rejected. Meanwhile, her thoughts were constantly with the Marquis de Villeroy, 
for whom she suffered all the delirium of italian love cherished by the solitude to which she confined herself for she had now lost all taste for the pleasures of society and the gaiety of amusement her only indulgences were to sigh and weep over a miniature of the marquis to visit the scenes that had witnessed their happiness to pour forth her heart to him in writing and to count the weeks the days which must intervene before the period that he had mentioned as probable for his return but this period passed without bringing him and week after week followed in heavy and almost intolerable expectation during this interval laurentini's fancy occupied incessantly by one idea became disordered and her whole heart being devoted to one object life became hateful to her when she believed that object lost several months passed during which she heard nothing about the marquis de villeroy and her days were marked at intervals with the frenzy of passion and the sullenness of despair she secluded herself from all visitors and sometimes remained in her apartment for weeks together refusing to speak to every person except her favorite female attendant writing scraps of letter reading again and again those she had received from the marquis weeping over his picture and speaking to it for many years upbraiding reproaching and caressing it alternately at length a report reached her that the marquis had married in france and after suffering all the extremes of love jealousy and indignation she formed the desperate resolution of going secretly to that country and if the report proved true of attempting a deep revenge to her favorite woman only she confided the plan of her journey and she engaged her to partake of it having collected her jewels which descending to her from many branches of her family were of immense value and all her cash to a very large amount they were packed in a trunk which was privately conveyed to a neighboring town whither laurentini with this only servant followed and thence proceeded secretly to legon where they embarked for france when on her arrival in languedoc she found that the marquis de villeroy had been married for some months her despair almost deprived her of reason and she alternately projected and abandoned the horrible design of murdering the marquis his wife and herself at length she contrived to throw herself in his way with an intention of reproaching him for his conduct and of stabbing herself in his presence but when she again saw him who so long had been the constant object of her thoughts and affections resentment yielded to love her resolution failed she trembled with the conflict of emotions that assailed her heart 
and fainted away. The Marquis was not proof against her beauty and sensibility. All the energy with which he had first loved returned, for his passion had been resisted by prudence rather than overcome by indifference, and since the honour of his family would not permit him to marry her, he had endeavoured to subdue his love, and had so far succeeded as to select the then Marchioness for his wife, whom he loved at first with a tempered and rational affection. But the mild virtues of that amiable lady did not recompense him for her indifference, which appeared notwithstanding her efforts to conceal it, and he had for some time suspected that her affections were engaged by another person when Laurentini arrived in Languedoc. This artful Italian soon perceived that she had regained her influence over him, and soothed by the discovery she determined to live, and to employ all her enchantments to win his consent to the diabolical deed, which she believed was necessary to the security of her happiness. She conducted her scheme with deep dissimulation and patient perseverance, and having completely estranged the affections of the Marquis from his wife, whose gentle goodness and unimpassioned manners had ceased to please. When contrasted with the captivations of the Italian, she proceeded to awaken in his mind the jealousy of pride, for it was no longer that of love, and even pointed out to him the person to whom she affirmed the Marchioness had sacrificed her honour. But Laurentini had first extorted from him a solemn promise to forbear avenging himself upon his rival. This was an important part of her plan, for she knew that if his desire of vengeance was restrained towards one party, it would burn more fiercely towards the other, and he might then perhaps be prevailed on to assist in the horrible act, which would release him from the only barrier that withheld him from making her his wife. The innocent Marchioness, meanwhile, observed with extreme grief the alteration in her husband's manners. He became reserved and thoughtful in her presence. His conduct was austere, and sometimes even rude, and he left her for many hours together to weep for his unkindness and to form plans for the recovery of his affection. His conduct afflicted her the more, because in obedience to the command of her father she had accepted his hand, though her affections were engaged to another, whose amiable disposition she had reason to believe would have ensured her happiness. This circumstance Laurentini had discovered soon after her arrival in France, and had made ample use of it in assisting her designs upon the Marquis, to whom she adduced such seeming proof of his wife's infidelity that in the frantic rage of wounded honour he consented to destroy his wife. A slow poison was administered, and she fell a victim to the jealousy 
and subtlety of Laurentini and to the guilty weakness of her husband. But the moment of Laurentini's triumph, the moment to which she had looked forward for the completion of all her wishes, proved only the commencement of a suffering that never left her to her dying hour. The passion of revenge, which had in part stimulated her to the commission of this atrocious deed, died even at the moment when it was gratified, and left her to the horrors of unavailing pity and remorse, which would probably have empoisoned all the years she had promised herself with the Marquis de Villeroy, had her expectations of an alliance with him been realized. But he too had found the moment of his revenge to be that of remorse. As to himself and detestation as to the partner of his crime. The feeling which he had mistaken for conviction was no more, and he stood astonished and aghast that no proof remained of his wife's infidelity, now that she had suffered the punishment of guilt. Even when he was informed that she was dying, he had felt suddenly and unaccountably reassured of her innocence nor was the solemn assurance she made him in her dying hour capable of affording him a stronger conviction of her blameless conduct. In the first horrors of remorse and despair, he felt inclined to deliver up himself and the woman who had plunged him into this abyss of guilt into the hands of justice. But when the paroxysm of his suffering was over, his intention changed. Laurentini, however, he saw only once afterwards, and that was to curse her as the instigator of his crime and to say that he spared her life only on condition that she passed the rest of her days in prayer and penance. Overwhelmed with disappointment on receiving contempt and abhorrence from the man for whose sake she had not scrupled to stain her conscience with human blood, and touched with horror of the unavailing crime she had committed, she renounced the world, and retired to the monastery of St. Clair, a dreadful victim to unresisted passion. The Marquis, immediately after the death of his wife, quitted Chatterley Blank, to which he never returned and endeavoured to lose the sense of his crime amidst the tumult of war or the dissipations of a capital but his efforts were vain a deep dejection hung over him ever after for which his most intimate friend could not account and he at length died with a degree of horror nearly equal to that which laurentini had suffered the physician who had observed the singular appearance of the unfortunate marchioness after death had been bribed to silence and as the surmises of a few servants had proceeded no further than a whisper the affair had never been investigated whether this whisper ever reached the father of the marchioness and if it did whether the difficulty of obtaining proof deterred him 
from prosecuting the Marquis de Villeroy is uncertain. But her death was deeply lamented by some part of her family, and particularly by her brother, Monsieur saint Aubert, for that was the degree of relationship which had existed between Emily's father and the Marchioness. And there is no doubt that he suspected the manner of her death. Many letters passed between the Marquis and him, soon after the decease of his beloved sister, the subject of which was not known, but there is reason to believe that they related to the cause of her death, and these were the papers, together with some letters of the Marchioness, who had confided to her brother the occasion of her unhappiness, which St. Aubert had so solemnly enjoined his daughter to destroy, and anxiety for her peace had probably made him forbid her to inquire into the melancholy story to which they alluded. Such, indeed, has been his affliction on the premature death of his favourite sister, whose unhappy marriage had from the first excited his tenderest pity that he could never hear her named or mention her himself after her death except to madame saint aubert from emily whose sensibility he feared to awaken he had so carefully concealed her history and name that she was ignorant till now that she ever had such a relative as the marchioness de villeroy and from this motive he had enjoined silence to his only surviving sister, Madame Sharon, who had scrupulously observed his request. It was over some of the last pathetic letters of the Marchioness that saint Aubert was weeping, when he was discovered by Emily on the eve of her departure from La Vallée, and it was her picture which he had so tenderly caressed. Her disastrous death may account for the emotion he had betrayed on hearing her named by La Voisin, and for his request to be interred near the monument of the Villeroys, where her remains were deposited, but not those of her husband, who was buried where he died in the north of France. The confessor, who attended saint Aubert in his last moments, recollected him to be the brother of the late Marchioness, when saint Aubert, from tenderness to Emily, had conjured him to conceal the circumstance, and to request that the abbess, to whose care he particularly recommended her, would do the same, a request which had been exactly observed. Laurentini, on her arrival in France, had carefully concealed her name and family, and the better to disguise her real history, had, on entering the convent, caused the story to be circulated, which had imposed on Sister Frances, and it is probable that the abbess, who did not preside in the convent at the time of her noviciation, was also entirely ignorant of the truth. The deep remorse that seized on the mind of Laurentini, together with the sufferings of disappointed passion, for she still loved the Marquis, again unsettled her intellects 
and after the first paroxysms of despair were past a heavy and silent melancholy had settled upon her spirits which suffered few interruptions from fits of frenzy till the time of her death during many years it had been her only amusement to walk in the woods near the monastery in the solitary hours of night and to play upon a favorite instrument to which she sometimes joined the delightful melody of her voice in the most solemn and melancholy airs of her native country modulated by all the energetic feeling that dwelt in her heart the physician who had attended her recommended it to the superior to indulge her in this whim as the only means of soothing her distempered fancy and she was suffered to walk in the lonely hours of night attended by the servant who had accompanied her from italy but as the indulgence transgressed against the rules of the convent it was kept as secret as possible and thus the mysterious music of laurentini had combined with other circumstances to produce a report that not only the chateau but its neighborhood was haunted soon after her entrance into this holy community and before she had shown any symptoms of insanity there she made a will in which after bequeathing a considerable legacy to the convent she divided the remainder of her personal property which her jewels made very valuable between the wife of monsieur bonac who was an italian lady and her relation and the nearest surviving relative of the late marchioness de villeroy as emily sanover was not only the nearest but the sole relative this legacy descended to her and thus explained to her the whole mystery of her father's conduct the resemblance between emily and her unfortunate aunt had frequently been observed by laurentini and had occasioned the singular behaviour which had formerly alarmed her but it was in the nun's dying hour when her conscience gave her perpetually the idea of the marchioness that she became more sensible than ever of this likeness and in her frenzy deemed it no resemblance of the person she had injured but the original herself the bold assertion that had followed on the recovery of her senses that emily was the daughter of the marchioness de villeroy arose from a suspicion that she was so for knowing that her rival when she married the marquis was attached to another lover she had scarcely scrupled to believe that her honour had been sacrificed like her own to an unresisted passion of a crime however to which emily had suspected from her frenzied confession of murder that she had been instrumental in the castle of udolpho laurentini was innocent and she had herself been deceived concerning the spectacle that formerly occasioned her so much terror and had since compelled her for a while to attribute the horrors of the nun to a consciousness of a murder committed in that castle it may be remembered that in a chamber of udolpho hung a black veil whose singular situation 
had excited Emily's curiosity, and which afterwards disclosed an object that had overwhelmed her with horror, for on lifting it there appeared, instead of the picture she had expected, within a recess of the wall, a human figure of ghastly paleness, stretched at its length and dressed in the habiliments of the grave. What added to the horror of the spectacle was that the face appeared partly decayed and disfigured by worms, which were visible on the features and hands. On such an object, it will be readily believed that no person could endure to look twice. Emily, it may be recollected, had, after the first glance, let the wheel drop, and her terror had prevented her from ever after provoking a renewal of such suffering as she had then experienced. Had she dared to look again, her delusion and her fears would have vanished together, and she would have perceived that the figure before her was not human, but formed of wax. The history of it is somewhat extraordinary, though not without example, in the records of that fierce severity which monkish superstition has sometimes inflicted on mankind. A member of the house of Udolpho, having committed some offence against the prerogative of the church, had been condemned to the penance of contemplating, during certain hours of the day, a waxen image, made to resemble a human body in the state to which it is reduced after death. This penance, serving as a memento of the condition to which he must himself arrive, had been designed to reprove the pride of the Marquis of Udolpho, who had formerly so much exasperated that of the Romish church, and he had not only superstitiously observed this penance himself, which he had believed was to obtain a pardon for all his sins, but had made it a condition in his will that his descendants should preserve the image on pain of forfeiting to the church a certain part of his domain, that they also might profit by the humiliating moral it conveyed. The figure, therefore, had been suffered to retain its station in the wall of the chamber, but his descendants excused themselves from observing the penance to which he had been enjoined. This image was so horribly natural that it is not surprising Emily should have mistaken it for the object it resembled, nor, since she had heard such an extraordinary account concerning the disappearing of the late lady of the castle, and had such experience of the character of Montoni, that she should have believed this to be the murdered body of the Lady Laurentini, and that he had been the contriver of her death. The situation in which she had discovered it occasioned her, at first, much surprise and perplexity, but the vigilance with which the doors of the chamber where it was deposited were afterwards secured, had compelled her to believe that Montoni, not daring to confide the secret of her death to any person, had suffered her remains to decay in this obscure chamber. The ceremony of the veil, however, and the circumstance of the doors 
having been left open even for a moment had occasioned her much wonder and some doubts but these were not sufficient to overcome her suspicion of montoni and it was the dread of his terrible vengeance that had sealed her lips in silence concerning what she had seen in the west chamber emily in discovering the marchioness de villeroy to have been the sister of monsieur st aubert was variously affected but amidst the sorrow which she suffered for her untimely death she was released from an anxious and painful conjecture occasioned by the rash assertion of signora laurentini concerning her birth and the honour of her parents her faith in st aubert's principles would scarcely allow her to suspect that he had acted dishonourably and she felt such reluctance to believe herself the daughter of any other than her whom she had always considered and loved as a mother that she would hardly admit such a circumstance to be possible yet the likeness which it had frequently been affirmed she bore to the late marchioness the former behaviour of dorothy the old housekeeper the assertion of laurentini and the mysterious attachment which st aubert had discovered awakened doubts as to his connection with the marchioness which her reason could neither vanquish nor confirm from these however she was now relieved and all the circumstances of her father's conduct were fully explained but her heart was oppressed by the melancholy catastrophe of her amiable relative and by the awful lesson which the history of the nun exhibited the indulgence of whose passions had been the means of leading her gradually to the commission of a crime from the prophecy of which in her early years she would have recoiled in horror and exclaimed that it could not be a crime which whole years of repentance and of the severest penance had not been able to obliterate from her conscience End of Volume 4, Chapter 17